Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, maybe you don't have to pay taxes? For people who know me, one of the early things they find out is that I love a good conspiracy theory. I don't buy into them, but I find it fascinating the sort of things that people will believe when it fits into their desire to possess secret knowledge. The tax world equivalent of the flat earthers are the tax protester. For the most part, they aren't protesting anything. They just have some theory that only they and other recipients of the secret knowledge have figured out how to avoid paying taxes. In addition to the draw of secret knowledge, these theories also confer significant financial benefits, at least temporarily. So we've invited several reporters to tell us their favorite stories of tax processor arguments. So put on your favorite foil headwear and enjoy. Joining me now in the studio is Tax Notes Today reporter Jonathan Curry. Jonathan, what do you have for me? Got a good one for you today, Dave. I got the Brown Rebellion, and not the one with John Brown and, and Harper's Ferry. Okay. This one is about Ed and Elaine Brown. Okay. I'm intrigued. Tell me more. So, the way this starts is that Ed was just your ordinary pest control guy. Elaine was a dentist, and she had a fairly successful practice. And at some point in the 90s, they got involved in a militia movement. And they believed in various conspiracy theories. They thought people like Bill Clinton and George Bush Sr. and the American Bar Association apparently was on their list of people out to get them and rob them of their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Okay. So, at some point, they decided that they did not need to pay taxes anymore. And so, they quit. It seems a natural progression. There's something there. So they decided that they were going to stop paying taxes. They weren't going to file their income tax returns anymore. So at some point, the federal government got wind of this. And in 2006, they were indicted in New Hampshire and turned out they owed more than $625,000 in federal taxes. Now, halfway through the trial, Ed decides he's just not going to show up anymore. And Elaine decides she does a noble thing. She decides to stay there. She's going to try to renegotiate and get a plea bargain. And didn't really work out so well. They were found guilty in January of 2007 of lots of tax-related charges. And they ended up getting five years in prison each. So, you know, this is kind of your typical tax protester story at this point, right? You know, someone thinks they don't know the taxes. Yeah. 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 No big deal. Well, it gets kind of crazy after that. I was hoping it would. Oh, it gets really good. So Ed and Elaine reportedly decided to tell the court that they had no authority over them. They called themselves their own court and judge. Doesn't sound like it's how it's supposed to work, but I'm assuming they have a theory. Eh, Sort of. (laughs) So when they signed the uh, court filing officially announcing this, they signed it as, quote, Edward, a living soul in the body of the Lord of the House of Israel, and Elaine, a living soul in the body of the Lord of the House of Israel. The court rejected this filing and called it frivolous. So apparently at some point while they were waiting for their sentencing hearing, someone opened their eyes to the reality of life. A guy named Sonny who came from Hawaii and he had a long beard. He wore all white clothes and sandals and he converted them to some strange cult. So around this time, they returned a property tax bill, not with a payment, but with a statement that reads, and may I read the statement in full? Absolutely. I I hope you will. It's, It's worth it. It reads this. Nay, nay, the land at 401 Center of Town Road, Plainfield, New Hampshire, which is where the Browns lived, and all that is in and upon it, including the Lord's bodies, are in the kingdom of heaven, belonging to the Lord, have been claimed by him, and thus can be claimed by no man, nor can any man have beneficial interest in it. Stand down and away from the Lord's land and the bodies of the Lord. So it is written, so it is done. I really want to begin every email with nay, nay from now on. 
<laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a great idea. And then when you tell reporters what to do, you just say, so it is done, so it is written. This is my new email format. That's going to be my signature line. <laughs> You can't contest it. You have to. You have to comply. Right. So Ed and Elaine, they were convinced they did not have to go to jail, and they were really convinced. So when their sentencing hearing came up later, I think it was in April of that year, they claimed to have abandoned man's law, and they would only follow the laws put forth in the Bible. So essentially, they claimed that they were no longer U.S. citizens, and they were thus non-residents for tax purposes. They claimed that the IRS and their federal income tax, in particular, were part of a plot by the Freemasons. This is where it gets real Ooh. good. So you know okay. there must be some legitimacy. I there. mean, you bring in the Freemasons. That's bringing the heat. Right. They were convinced that the Freemasons were trying to use the IRS and the federal income tax system to control the world. Which, if he had, you know, stuck around till the TCGA was enacted and we switched from a worldwide to a territorial tax system, maybe his argument wouldn't really have as much merit anymore. That, that's a good point. Should have been a little more patient on yeah. that, probably. And at, at this point, he had stockpiled a year, he or at least he claimed to have stockpiled a year and a half of uh, food and supplies, and he stated that he would violently oppose to the death anyone one who came to arrest them. So, by midsummer, a standoff is in place. And, turns out, quite a few folks were attracted to the Browns' residence at this time. While they were there, there's a lot of really crazy details about this, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. But they hosted a concert on the property, which drew about 200 people, actually. They also had one of the family members from the Ruby Ridge standoff come and endorse the Browns in their cause. They stated that he was looking forward to declaring war, and that the only way he saw this whole standoff ending was through war. A little... Frightening, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the good news about all this is that, unlike Ruby Ridge, this standoff ended with no violence. What happened here is that in October, federal agents posed as pizza delivery drivers. <laughs> okay. And sure. they simply drove up to the house, walked right inside, and arrested them before they realized what was happening to them. I, You know, any agent out there that's listening, if you're going to sneak into my house, showing up with a pizza in hand is really the way to do it. So I, I can appreciate <laughs> it's that. foolproof. So, yeah, Definitely. absolutely. <laughs> Who's going to turn away pizza? <laughs> it's unless, very disarming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless, it's, unless they show up and it's a Hawaiian pizza, then <laughs> just get right off my lawn. Yeah, get that out of there. So as of now, Ed and Elaine are serving much, much longer jail sentences. They were going to serve five years each. It's a little bit longer now because once you threaten to kill a federal agent, things get a little more dramatic. Mm -hmm. An interesting addendum to this whole story is that the government tried to auction off the Browns' property twice to pay the tax debts. Now, the the first time the government tried to auction it off, Ed sort of leaked statements, managed to get statements out there, hinting strongly that he had booby-trapped his woods with explosives. That wasn't particularly surprising because when the government, you know, came in, you know, took, took them, arrested them, they found that behind them they had grenades and pipe bombs and mm. 50 caliber rifles and 60,000 rounds of ammo. So, you know, you can kind of see it. Like, okay, maybe there's some yeah. something, someone forgot to clean something up. Uh, so when it first went up for auction, no one bought it. And that's because people weren't actually allowed to tour the property for obvious safety reasons. Uh, a year later, however, the government tried again and they let interested buyers tour the property as long as they were accompanied by an IRS. Official. I don't know how you get that job as an IRS official, but I'm just imagining them dressed up like the Hurt Locker. <laughs> and I, yeah, a nice, uh, nice explosive proof. Right. <laughs> With uh, an IRS logo on. Right. <laughs> 
and it, lo and behold, the property was sold for $205,000. So that's money that went back into the treasury, which incidentally, Ed and Elaine did not believe the treasury actually existed. Now, if you're interested, you can actually look up this property on Zillow. And it's actually quite nice. It's oh, a, a cool. large nice. building. So I think it's about 4,000 square feet, uh, big white walls, it even has kind of a castle. It has turrets. So, you know, they were looking. If you're, if you're looking to do a standoff, that sounds like the right place. It's perfect. Yeah. So go check it out. It's actually up for sale again. Oh, so. okay. Have I'll, at it, everybody. Okay. <laughs> On that note, Jonathan, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Joining me now in the studio is Tax News Today legal reporter Nathan Richmond. Nathan, what do you have for me? Well, one of the things that always entertains me about tax protesters is when they take it not just a step towards, oh, I've got this special legal theory, or then there's the group that says, oh, you ruled against me. Therefore, the DOJ or the IRS, they wronged me somehow. And then there's the group of people who say, wait, 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 you ruled against me, Mr. Judge. You are now subject to my next proposed legal action. Recently, there have been a few cases of people suing the judges who ruled against them that always pique my interest. I have to assume that, you know, uh, someone going after a judge, that's not really going to end well. Not exactly. I mean, one involving a guy named Ronald Francis Croteau and another involving a gentleman named Michael Ballas. These guys sued. They did not get much attention in their cases, just there's this judicial immunity. If you, the judge, is being a judge, you can't sue them for the result. That seems to make a lot of sense. (laughs) But then there's the case, it's called McNeil. It's a group of tax protesters who sued in two cases together a group of district court judges who had dismissed 10 of their cases and the second case the circuit court panel that dismissed their appeals and they claimed that they had a right to have their suits addressed on the merits so when they were dismissed for being barred by the anti-injunction act and for not having standing they said hey our substantive rights have been abridged and their suits against these judges got dismissed for lack of standing. So if they had gotten to the court on the merits, what was their argument against paying taxes? The only thing about their argument that I recall that was particularly noteworthy was that they uh, sued the judges, but they did have one other really entertaining thing that they threw in, which was they claimed that because they sued the judges in their personal capacities rather than their official capacities, that they the judges were not entitled to Justice Department lawyers defending the cases, which entertainingly undercut their argument for why they had standing because the court could not overrule the opinions because there was nothing that these defendants could have done in their personal capacities that would matter to the loss of their official cases. It's always entertaining when these sorts of, uh, I'd like to call them tax frivolists. It's a much more uh, jovial name. Sure. When they shoot themselves in the foot. Yes. Which brings me to the case of Robert Wesley. Now, this one was actually in the tax court. Now, he presented some absurd arguments like because the income tax return is Form 1040, that Section 1040, which governs estate taxes, matters, and because he's not an executor, yeah. So you're supposed to match the section number with the form for reasons? Basically. Okay. And argument dismissed as such. But what was fun about his case is the IRS initially assessed a $5,000 frivolous return penalty under uh, Section 6702. If you file something that's like a zero return, this sort of inanity, there's a $5,000 penalty. During the court case, the IRS says, you know, 
we're going to abate that. I think perhaps because he might not actually have filed anything. But the court, because he's presenting these legal theories and has done so previously, takes its authority under Section 6673 to assess a $10,000 frivolous argument penalty. He had previously been hit with some of the smaller versions of that. So, All right, so winning... I mean, it's, it's a bigger number, so obviously he's doing well. <laughs> yeah, lots and lots of winning in Tiger's Blood. Okay. <laughs> Last one I've got for you is uh, proof that sometimes there is something new under the sun. Tax protester arguments are often pretty similar, similar mold. Things like the tax is unconstitutional. Sometimes somebody takes it a little further and says, this is unconstitutional, therefore you don't have subject matter jurisdiction. That's not going to get you anywhere, as one John K. Steele recently found out. What he did that was new is he tried to prove that the tax is unconstitutional by citing to the salt cap deduction litigation, which is about the constitutionality of that. Now, this was not to defend a motion to dismiss or to defend a motion for summary judgment. This was, he had raised this court's jurisdiction over constitutionality several times to the point where the judge said, you know, I've dealt with this before. I've warned you against raising this again before, but now the court will not be so oblique this time. This is the last time the court will rule on the issue of subject matter jurisdiction and followed it up with if you try this again you will be enjoined from filing new suits so the long and short of this is don't come arguing that the tax is unconstitutional and don't come arguing that the court doesn't have jurisdiction the court will repeatedly say in frivolous contexts and regular contexts it always has jurisdiction to discern its own jurisdiction and if you come with the wrong argument, you might find that your $5,000 penalty becomes a $10,000 penalty. If you come often enough. Well, Nate, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. To demonstrate how this is not just an American phenomenon is Worldwide Tax Daily legal reporter Jennifer McLaughlin. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you have for me? Well, this one story came across the desk this past February, and it was a bit of an eyebrow raiser. Now, we hear... A lot of similar arguments um, among tax protesters, you know, maybe the arguments are packaged in different ways, maybe they're tailored to the individual facts, but this story stood out for, let's say, the taxpayer's novel approach. So basically, the message underlying this taxpayer's argument is that you need to exist in order to pay taxes. Seems to make sense, yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it does. So an Australian man tried to convince a court that he relinquished his right to be recognized as a person, and therefore the tax law did not apply to him. That's an interesting approach. It is a very interesting approach, you know, and based on reports, this is a flesh-and-blood man. He was there in court, you know, he wasn't a ghost, wasn't a lifelike hologram, not cousin to Harvey the Rabbit, he was there in person. Mm -hmm. Is there any indication of how he, he made that argument that I am talking to you right now, but I do not exist? It's just I, I've chosen not to exist? He Yes, it seemed to be just a unilateral decision on his part that he just gave up the right or waived his right to be recognized as a person. And even though he was there in person, he's waiving the right to be recognized as an individual. So he's basically giving up his personhood. It's kind of a much more extreme version of uh, expats giving up their citizenship. <laughs> yes. Here, it's not just citizenship. You're basically giving up the entire right to be even looked at as an individual in the flesh. Here's my passport. Here's my birth certificate. Yes. <laughs> 
Push all that aside as though it never existed. Do we know how that turned out for him? Not too well for him, predictably. The court wasn't too impressed with the argument, mourning that if people could cherry-pick which tax laws to follow, that would essentially make a mockery of the law. And what's interesting is he had been filing tax returns up until about 2010, from what we understand. He decided not to file his tax returns for tax years 2012 through 2017. We're not sure why. He just decided to stop, but he just ceased filing them. There was this back and forth between the tax office. He raised some constitutional arguments with them, but, you know, predictably at court, the Australian tax office attorney said there are no personal exemptions from the Australian constitution and parliament can implement these laws. So you're on the hook for the tax laws. And he just kept on doubling down saying, look, I'm not a person, therefore I'm not an Australian resident and these tax laws don't apply. He even tried to um, invoke a few United Nations documents, which was kind of interesting. But I would assume they apply to people. Exactly. And that's the part that's not quite clear. Okay, all right. <laughs> so he kind of wanted the best of both worlds. So he suggested that the tax laws infringed upon his human rights in violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He also suggested that the tax laws, or the tax bill, effectively bound him in servitude or slavery, which is against the United Nations International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So we've heard, I think, the slavery argument a few times in right. the past. Yeah, so that's nothing new. But, you know, the court wasn't moved by the man's plea, saying, no, your human rights, you're human, mm-hmm. and you're hum- but your human rights are not violated, and no, you are not bound in slavery. Okay. So he has been found liable for about, it's only a small amount, too, only about like six thousand Australian dollars, which is a little over four thousand in US dollars. So quite a big fight over a de minimis amount. Yeah. So that's the first story. Another one that came across our desk that was kind of interesting also showed taxpayers kind of thinking outside of the box, but this one was a little bit different. This story takes place back in Spain in 2012. As you might recall, Spain was deep in an economic crisis at the time. And as part of these sweeping austerity measures announced in 2012, Spain decided to increase the value-added tax on tickets for cultural activities, concerts, cinema, theater. And it was a pretty significant tax hike, climbing from 8% to 21%. So this hit Spanish theaters pretty hard. The rise in ticket prices really could threaten attendance on one hand, but also jobs on the other hand. And based on what local media reports report on the past, it did. It did take a hit on both attendance and employment. So what some people developed was a sort of workaround. And instead of selling tickets to the show, they would sell another product that was subject to a lower tax rate. Okay. And this product would effectively be the ticket. But they would sell this product at a purchase price that was significantly higher than the product's typical sticker price. Okay. What sort of products are we talking about? So the first example is what the local media dubbed the Carrot Rebellion. So this theater director... I'm sorry. I'm just imagining like a bunch of rats. <laughs> it's either the best, the worst, like Bugs Bunny skit ever. <laughs> yeah. On this one theater director, he offered basically a free, quote-unquote, ticket or admission for anyone who bought a carrot. Okay. The going rate for a carrot was 13 euros, which is about 15 American dollars. So are these those, like, blue heirloom carrots, or are we just talking straight... 
orange Bugs Bunny carrot. You're talking straight out of the ground Bugs Bunny carrot that he starts chomping okay. right away. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I think one of the stories I recall said that this man looked outside of his window to the farms surrounding the theater and thought, there are carrots. We're going to take those and use those. Okay. So this was not any sort of like heirloom carrot. <laughs> so was this a successful venture he went on? It actually was. So, you know, the carrots... We're subject to a lower tax rate, only 4%, so they didn't have to deal with the 21%. And based on what local media reported, shows were sold out. (laughs) As I read things, I wondered if this was a real symbolic protest. I mean, that's a lot of money for a carrot. But, you know, if you consider it as a stand-in for a ticket, it's basically the same thing. So, yes, it sounded like it was very successful for him. That was in 2012. Then um, about two years later, 2014, there were other reports that highlighted a different approach. Similar um, in terms of selling a product in lieu of a ticket, but less of a G-rated approach. So this story reported on this all-woman theater group that instead of produce, they would sell an erotic magazine for admission. Okay. And the going rate for the magazine was 16 euros, which is about, I think, $18. I know $15 is a lot for a carrot. I have no idea if $18 is a lot for a dirty magazine. (laughs) 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 And I'm very happy about that fact. Okay. (laughs) Um, So apparently the tax on pornography is significantly less than the cultural activities. I think I read somewhere that's around 4%. I guess that makes an interesting point about (laughs) the way the tax system is structured. Yes, priorities, classification. Yes, there's a lot of questions there. So the group got their hands on some back issues of, I think, a discontinued dirty magazine. And I think it had a similar level of success as the Carrot Rebellion. I I haven't seen anything recently about these workarounds in Spain, and I think that has to do with the fact that as of 2017, it appears that the tax rate has been lowered to about mm. 10% for the cultural sectors. So there doesn't seem yep. to be as much of a need to circumvent or find, the, find a loophole. So I guess in this case, it's score one for the protester. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I didn't see any report on arrests or the tax authorities coming in. I think there were some concerns, especially with the publicity. You know, there might have been some authorities stepping in, asking questions, but it seemed to really strike a chord among people who were just up in arms about this huge tax hike on such a relevant and prevalent sectors in um, international society. I mean, the theaters, concerts, like music, mm-hmm. cinema. I mean, those are things that people really enjoy. Right. All right, well, Jennifer, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Sarah Zablatny focuses on divisive D corporate reorganizations and whether they will be respected when receipts or distributions of property don't go according to plan. Also... Scott Swartz examines the requirements for creating a grantor-retained annuity trust and addresses the potential planning issues. In state tax notes, Lynn Gandhi addresses the effect of recent Michigan tax actions, while Kathleen Wright discusses California's taxation of undistributed trust income and how recent litigation in North Carolina and California could change the process. And in Tax Notes International, Jose Calderon examines the Coordinated Transfer Pricing Control Framework developed by the EU Joint Transfer Pricing Forum, while Jeremy Cape looks at a revolutionary new VAT regime in Angola. 
You can read all that and a lot more in the April 1st editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript. April Fools! <laughs>